Welcome to the ACOFP Advocacy Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike Park. I'm a partner in the law firm of uh, Austin and Bird. I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I also serve as uh, ACOFP's Director of Government Relations. I'm joined this evening by several of my colleagues from the firm, uh, Mark Rader, who I believe will be joining us shortly, uh, Brian Lee, and Peter, Peter Eckridge. Uh, the purpose of today's, uh, this evening's webinar is to give you a quick debrief on the results of the 2020 elections, what, what type of political landscape we're, we're probably going into in 2021, and implications not only for healthcare, but family medicine in, in particular. Uh, just quickly uh, to give some uh, uh, con context, we uh, the purpose of the uh, or the outline of our webinar will be uh, we'll, we'll talk about what, what's going on or what's notable about the results in the White House, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and then talk, we'll go into implications for healthcare and family medicine, specifically in terms of uh, what what's going to happen in Congress as well as the administration. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Peter Eckridge. Thanks, Mike. I'm Peter Eckridge with Olson and Bird. I'm going to go over um, the, the White House election and just kind of go over really what we saw from some exit polls and just kind of going over the data that, we, that we've been able to collect since uh, after we're just going over um, all the different sources that have been out there. So as you all know, this was a record-breaking election. Um, that, this was you know, obviously an odd time during COVID-19. Uh, one of the big things that we saw from that was record-breaking early voting. You know, this year we had 101 million people voted before Election Day nationwide, a huge record over, up from 470 million, 47 million in uh, 2016. Uh, the overall turnout was huge. 2020 is, is still projected. There's still, I was checking right before this, this uh, webinar and the, the numbers are still going up. Right in 2020, there was 66.8% of the eligible population population that voted 148 million votes cast, breaking the previous record of 65 in 1908. So a big one. And Minnesota gets the gold star. They had the highest turn voter turnout at 79.4%. And so, and, and this is, I'm, I'm sure you guys have all seen this on the news, but this is the, uh, how the presidential election kind of shook out and the electoral college votes. Biden received uh, 306 and Trump received, Trump received 232 from the uh, election results. And this is, you know, this was an interesting slide when we were going through, is just kind of seeing, you know, what, what were the exit polls? What were kind of, well, how, where is the electorate at right now? We just kind of took some, some big things that we were looking at. You know, the top issues for voters were racial, for Democrats, it was racial inequality. For Republicans, it was the economy. Healthcare was uh, was was a major priority. It was it was higher earlier in the year, but it would drop down to eleven um, percent. But it's still a major priority for many of the voters. And some of the other interesting things that we that we saw, uh, you know, from from the exit polls is that you know Trump won forty one percent of independents, Biden won fifty four. Uh, it was you know there was a we saw that there wasn't a much flip from one party to another. The vast majority of Republicans and Democrats voted for their candidate, 94% did. We, there was a little bit different in, um, in income for, for, who was, for who they voted for. 55% of individuals made 
under 50,000 a year voted for Biden, um, whereas 54% of those over 100,000 a year voted for Trump. And there was, you know, 42% of women voted for Trump, 57 voted for Biden. And then uh, while 53 voted for, 33% of men voted for Trump and 45% of men voted for Biden. So there's a little, little change there on the, um, in those demographics. And then, you know, among age groups, this, is, this shouldn't really surprise anyone either, but uh, Trump did best against, uh, did best with the age group over 65 and Biden did best with the younger age, 18, 29. That's uh, pretty, pretty normal for what we've seen before. Um, but, you know, it was, it was also, you know, another very impressive number, you know, kind of going back to how many votes we had, Biden achieved a, a record number of popular vote, uh, 80 million about, about 14 million more from 2016 that uh, candidate Hillary Clinton got. Uh, Trump performed much better than uh, pundits expended, uh, yeah, 73 million right before when I was checking the numbers again, it was actually up to 74 million approximately 11 million, uh, 11 million votes more from 2016, uh, which was, you know, just kind of underscores how, uh, how, how big the turnout was this year. And again, as all you know, there's still a, a kind of, there's still a lot going on with what is gonna happen for finalizing the, the vote. We still have a, we still have a contested, contested election or, or at least the, uh, Trump has not formally conceded and so we just want to put together kind of what's what's the next steps the government service agency you know they're begin they have begun the process to to transition to a biden um, administration doing the first thing that started last month you know the state the state votes for certification for all the for all the different uh state votes that were that were on that previous previous slide five uh that certification is going to be uh must be done by november by december uh eighth there's still litigation going on. Um, it is possible that the litigation could go to the Supreme Court. Uh, we're still tracking that to see what we'll see how that would develop. Uh, there's been some uh, Trump Trump campaign has has had some losses in Pennsylvania, but there's still a chance it could go to the Supreme Court. And then finally, um, the last major deadline is going to be the electoral college vote. It's going to be December 14th, which will uh, officially do that. Choose the choose the winner of the presidential election, and so uh, we we just wanted to go through and kind of highlight what Biden campaigned on and what he's been showing as his immediate priorities. He campaigned on a public on a private public health insurance option, which would be a government government insurance option that be available to individuals, um, uh, reducing the uh, having a Medicare buy-in age at sixty years old allowing Medicare to negotiate for drug prices and restricting drug price gouging and reform drug patent system. Drug prices have been a big issue in Congress for the past few years now. Uh, eliminating the 400% poverty cap on the ACA plan premium subsidies, uh, limiting the premium cost to 8.5% of income, uh, addressing surprise billing. Again, that's been another very big issue in Congress for the past few years. And then some limiting on, on the inflation for pharmaceutical drug prices and uh, termination of the corporate tax break for drug advocacy. And we'll, we'll get more into this later, but the, all those priorities right now would be, would be difficult in a, um, or require, or require considerable amount of um, you know, log rolling and, and working with on the other side if there's a divided Congress. We'll get to that later. Uh, the next things that we've, we've just kind of gleaned from is, from since he's been the president-elect is those immediate priorities 
Uh, he has mentioned, you know, addressing consolidation in the healthcare sector. He could use it. He could use it, some executive action to try to get at this. Uh, there's has also been a big issue, and especially for ACFP, has been a big issue with addressing racial disparities in health equity. You know, some of the ones that have, that have popped up are maternal mortality and focusing on protections for LGBTQ individuals. Uh, another one has been mental health parity, just making sure that they are they have access to mental health and eliminating the stigma associated with mental health, which has also been an issue for uh, been an issue that ACFP has been really interested in. Uh, the other one has been the ACA marketplace and coverage issues generally. Um, you know, we expect him to come in and focus on, you know, building and strengthening the ACA, strengthening the ACA marketplace. It could be public campaigns uh, to encourage people to get enrolled. And we're, we're even hearing that it's possible that there could be a special enrollment period for, for this plan. Um, the last, the other one that we're, that we're watching closely is, you know, is Medicaid and what he's talked about Medicaid. Um, we're seeing, you know, we're, we're expecting him to look at the Trump era uh, executive actions and, and some of them argued some argued that they have limited eligibility to trump the trump era rules and, or place barriers to care uh, they are you know some of these are include the the medicaid fiscal accountability regulation that one you know it were still they still would have that would have to be finalized it, we don't know if that would actually happen there uh, they actually did withdraw it but there was mention that it could come back um, and prohibiting medicaid block grants or rolling back some of the uh, Medicaid work requirements that states have been using or applying for under the Trump administration. All right, so the next, the first thing that we know that, that we're pretty sure that we're gonna see Biden go after, what we know is gonna go after is gonna be the COVID-19. Uh, it's his, you know, almost immediately after his election, uh, he announced the, the task force. I'm not gonna read through all their names, but those are the uh, members of the task force on the right-hand side of the slide. Uh, the other big, big focus that he's going to have on the COVID-19 action plan that or he's announced is you know, making sure people have access to testing. And it, that's rapid point of care, uh, you name it. Uh, he wants to make sure that everyone has, has access to trust uh, to testing, you know, building public trust um, in, in public health officials, you know, it kind of goes for vaccine and, and going for vaccine hesitancy, watching, trying to make sure that people are gonna be um, participating. Uh, there's also, he's also signaled that he wants a national surveillance program uh, and to build something up for future pandemics, uh, investing 25 billion in vaccine manufacturing, having funds for state and local governments, uh, budget shortfalls, and you know, helping with PPP, PPE and small businesses, you know, further forbearance on student loans, you know, that would be helpful for me, uh, but what everyone is, you know, that's still a top issue. Uh, assistance for uh, families and unemployed individuals, and then emergency paid leave, and increased federal match for Medicaid program. All these have been also not, all of these things have been, have been priorities for ACFP, um, and among other, among other many, many other things. So that, so that is where he's at. We're going to get more into what's going to happen with the with COVID later on. But with that, I'm going to flip it back over to Brian, I believe, for the U.S. Senate. Thanks, Peter. Good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Lee. I'm going to provide a brief update on where things stand in the Senate after uh, Peter's nice overview of uh, what's going on with the White House. 
so the election, the election results in the Senate are largely final, but um, control for the 117th Congress uh, is really going to be decided by two Senate seats in Georgia. There are two open seats. One is in cycle. Uh, that's a Republican David Perdue seat. The other is a special election seat held by Republican Kelly Leffler. She was appointed last year to fill uh, retiring Senator Johnny Isaacson's seat. As a runoff state, if there's no candidate that receives more than 50% of the vote, the top two vote getters then go to a runoff. Both races are headed to a runoff. Senator Perdue will face John Ossoff and Senator Leffler will face Raphael Warnock. So that's still sort of up in the air to be determined. And that runoff election will be held on January 5th. You can see here where things stand. You need 51 for the majority, 60 to defeat a filibuster. And we're at a 48-50 split uh, pending those two outcomes. So this cycle, or the, the 2020 uh, race, the Republicans were very much on the defensive, but they've largely held their ground, losing uh, only, the, only two seats to Democrats. One, uh, Mark Kelly, a Democrat, was sworn in as Arizona senator yesterday. He is replacing Senator Martha McSally, who was appointed to that seat after Senator McCain's passing. Um, and then former Governor John Hickenlooper defeated the incumbent Republican Cory Gardner in Colorado. And Republicans also picked up a seat in Alabama, where uh, Tommy Tuberville defeated the Democratic Senator Doug Jones. In 2022, Republicans will again be on the defensive, 21 seats up against 12 seats for Democrats. So, you know, for the lame duck period, or, or now between now and, and the next Congress, there are 52 Republicans and 48 Democrats. There's very little room or, or narrow margin, basically for both sides, and especially now as you know, Republicans sort of seek to fill judicial, judicial and exec, executive branch appointees, and as Congress continues to try to work on funding the federal government by December 11th. You know, this narrowing margin, I, I think, makes moderate members from both sides even more important, as those you know sort of individual voices can really make or break legislative activity. So we'll be in for sort of a lot of negotiating, horse trading, et cetera, over the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, depending on the outcome of the Georgia runoffs, uh, we may be in an evenly divided Senate if, if uh, both Democrats win in Georgia. This is something that's only happened three times in the Senate's history, most recently in 2000. And obviously on the slide there is uh, the first time being in 1881. So, you know, we could have a little bit of history in 2020 to be determined. In, in that situation where you've got a 50-50 Senate, uh, the party that controls the White House essentially runs the Senate. So President-elect Biden, being a Democratic administration, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would hold the 51st vote in the event of a tie in the Senate. I, I think the split Senate would also further amplify uh, the importance of those moderate Democratic and Republican senators who really could determine key nominations, the legislative agenda, the direction that the Senate moves, and, and essentially the administration's priorities. So again, you know, these, these sort of middle road one-off voices are going to be, would play an even larger role in, uh, in this 50-50 split scenario. There are some who think that the split Senate may actually lead to more bipartisanship, more collaboration, more sort of working across the aisle, instead of sort of more of the polarization we've seen in recent years, where we've seen the parties split further and further apart from each other. Just, you know, in, in 2000, that 50-50 split was a result of 
Senator Jim Jeffords from Vermont, who basically switched sides. He went from Republicans to the Democrats. Seems like it would be unlikely in the next Congress, but you know, it's something that could occur in the event both Dem- uh, the Democrats win both Georgia runoff seats. So with that, I'll turn it over to uh, my colleague, Mark, to talk about the House of Representatives. Great. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Of course, in the, um, the House of Representatives um, was, uh, was, was a, big, a big surprise to, uh, to most folks and uh, certainly was probably the biggest surprise to, to, to House Democrats who had been told early on and throughout the process that, that they were going to cruise to victory, not just to hold their majority, but to increase their majority. And so when we're looking at, uh, at slide 15 here, uh, where you can sort of see the makeup of, uh, of the House currently through the end of, through the end of 2020, we, it's, it's 232 to 198. So, uh, you know, somewhat comfortable margin allows, uh, allows Democrats to actually, uh, you know, folks can, can take, a, take a night off, so to speak, and, and take a pass on tough votes uh, for their district. So it allows you a little bit of margin to do the things that, that you need to do, both to get things done in the House, as well as to protect your majority by, by allowing members to, to walk on, on tough votes when, when necessary and vote with their district as opposed to perhaps sometimes with your, with your majority. But uh, it was a, a big night uh, for Republicans in that sense. It, it wasn't a wave or anything, but it, considering what the, they were expected to lose 10 or 20 seats, they actually picked up quite a number of seats. And, uh, and so uh, now it shows here 222 to 206 is where it's at. That's actually even improved just in the last couple of days since then. It's, it's now more like 222 to 212 maybe even 213. There are two outstanding races, actually really one outstanding race. One's been called in Iowa where the Republican won by six votes. That has been declared. Of course, they're going to do a recount of that again, or it's going to be challenged. So that still could possibly go the other way. In New York, that's uh, Iowa, Iowa 2. And then in New York 22, 22nd District, the, they are still counting there. And the Republican is up by merely 12 votes. So things are really, really, are really, really tight. And that makes it a very slim majority for, for, for Democrats. And that's a tough, tough thing to work with, especially as they are dealing with sort of what the Republicans dealt with a couple of years ago uh, when they had last had their majority, when they had sort of the conservative wing of their party sort of causing problems for them on, on votes. And now you're seeing sort of the, 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 flip, the flip side of that. You're having the more uh, liberal Democrats causing uh, difficulty sometimes for the, uh, for the leadership, trying to get them to, uh, to pull them to the left. Some of the big takeaways, again, regarding this are that, uh, of course, again, that we, like we talked about, that, that there is expected to be more, perhaps not a, a democratic route, but a, but a strong night for them. That didn't happen. It does allow them to still control the floor of the House so long as they can keep that majority. And so they will be a foil to the Senate. And as Brian was talking about, the Senate is very close too. And so you've got these two bodies that have sort of razor thin margins, uh, no matter how you look at it. And, uh, and so that possibly is a place for, for moderates to actually have some running room. Typically, when you've got a stronger, a stronger majority in each, in each side, those folks get, get squashed sometimes. And so you're going to see the groups like the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a group of, of about 20 to 25 Republicans, 25 Democrats that try to try to force a way in the middle to get things done. And you will, um, like you've seen recently with them, trying to work on a, uh, a COVID relief package. So we see that happening. 
you also have uh, a couple more clinicians in Congress now. The number has been growing ever since ever since President Clinton got in and they started working on health care reform back in 1993. So the response to that was trying to, uh, there really were no, uh, maybe, a, maybe a handful of, of clinicians in Congress. Now you see a lot more physicians, nurses, and, and others who have, who have clinical experience. So we pick up a couple more, including a pharmacist. And so there's also a lot more women in Congress in the House. There's more than 140 now. The, in fact, the Republicans picked up a lot too. They had lost a number when they got uh, when they lost the majority back in 2018, and uh, from some retirements as well. But they picked up a number of them, including a number of women of color as well. So uh, one of the additional things that are coming up in 20, 2022 is, of course, we've got another election, and so we have we have an election coming up as as we typically do every two years for the House. And then about a third of the Senate will also be up, but also because of the census, the decennial census, you get a reapportionment after the census is done in the every 10 years. And then you get that reapportionment and where they start to shift the seats throughout the, uh, throughout the country based on the population. And of course, over, over the last number of decades, we've seen, the, we've seen that move down to the South and to the West. This is no exception. And that mostly gets pulled from the Northeast and Midwest. So you're going to see States like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and others lose seats, and actually for the first time in a while, California, which had grown so much. And you see those seats being reapportioned to the South, like Texas and Florida, but also to areas out West, like Colorado and Oregon, and even Montana, finally get a finally get a second seat in Congress. And so it's really important in terms of what also happened on election night, and that Republicans didn't lose any any state legislative houses, and they also picked up one governorship. And so it's the state legislatures that, that generally are the ones who, uh, who draw those maps in these states. And so that could be helpful for Republicans in trying to protect some of the seats that they do have and, and trying, to, trying to win back, claw back a couple of those seats to make it uh, some of those districts more winnable. So we could even we could see another very close election come 2022 because of that. So, you know, looking ahead here, we've uh, we talked about a little bit about sort of what we're facing here, looking uh, looking through the just the last 30 days or so of of the year, and uh, what we call the lame duck session. Uh, after the election, uh, there's a number of members of Congress in both the House and the Senate that are uh, will no longer be in office uh, come uh, come January 2021, and uh, and so they but they still have votes until the end of the session, uh, and so throws a little bit of a wild card. As typically happens now, pretty much every year for for Brian, Peter, Mike, and I, December becomes uh, not the not the month of uh, of the holidays, but instead a month where uh, everybody is scurrying on Capitol Hill to try to get the the federal government uh, funded for the next year and trying to get as many as many different priorities done and finished before the end of the next Congress, which is what we have at the end of, uh, of this year. And so once we get to January, all those bills, uh, more than six thousand bills probably on each side of the of both in the House and the Senate, how all would have to be reintroduced. And so it takes a while. So everybody's trying feverishly to get those things done. First on that agenda is the spending bill for funding the federal government, as I said, in 2021. That will, they're, they're trying to work hard on that right now, but they really don't have a whole lot of time. And so that could either be a temporary uh, funding measure um, that just goes to say February or beginning of March, or they could go all the way through to next September 30th and just put sort of a rubber stamp on existing spending, what they call a continuing resolution. They basically just change the dates and go forward. And that's, that's basically sort of a failure of, uh, of the government sort of getting the work done, but it means that they haven't been able to come to an agreement on those things. 
but they could also do just a, a short-term version of that and where they add some additional spending or mix it up where they are just doing putting a rubber stamp on some of the funding, but, but for other parts of the funding, they, uh, they can be more specific. Of course, what we also talked about was the COVID aid relief, relief package. They've been trying to get an, another package done for the last six or seven months or so since the last one was done basically in April, but they have been, uh, that's been out of the grasp of Congress so far and, and the election didn't help those things. So what they're trying to do right now is come to an agreement. The Democrats were, were about at uh, three trillion or so uh, when they passed their uh, their bill all the way back in May. And so, you know, the Republicans were, were waiting a little bit farther on that. And in July decided that they weren't, that was too big of a number for them. And really, as the economy started to come out of the doldrums, thought that they were, that too much money was being spent all at once. And so you saw the parties really, really drift apart. Part of that had to do with politics of the election. Part of it had to do with just philosophical difference in the role of government. And so we saw them really going far apart. They tried to get it done before the election, weren't able to do so. So here we are again. And there's a couple of big cliffs here at the end of the year where you have uh, unemployment insurance and things like that, which are, which are running out. And also the Democrats in particular looking for money for state and local governments, Republicans uh, wanting money for the PPP program. And so basically you're at Republicans, in the, particularly in the Senate, looking at wanting about $500 billion, about half a trillion dollars. And the Democrats were at $2 trillion. Well, that problem solvers caucus that I mentioned earlier, where you've got moderates in both the House and the Senate, have sort of put together their own package, trying to find sort of a third way. And so they did about $900 billion uh, instead, trying to focus on the things that most everybody could, could agree on and get what, they, get what they really need. Now, that, that package probably won't go through exactly as it is, but that number and a lot of the framework of that seems to be coming into, uh, into play here as we as we get uh, go through next week. That funding has to be done by the 11th. There's a number of health extenders that also go on that, as you can see, the Medicaid DISH, funding for community health centers, uh, and some other things uh, regarding uh, Medicare and, um, and home health, et cetera. And so there's a lot of things that, that, ever, that people are depending for this to ride on these larger bills, both the spending bill and the COVID aid relief package. This is going to be basically a really top-level discussion between Majority Leader McConnell, Speaker Pelosi, and, uh, and probably uh, Secretary Mnuchin uh, from, the, from the administration. We're taking a look here at what might be the, the issues for health care in the 117th Congress, which begins um, basically January 4th. Of course, that, that, uh, that big Senate, those big Senate races that, uh, that Brian was talking about before are January 5th, so it, it won't, won't be long. And, uh, and so COVID aid will, even if they get uh, sort of a smaller bill done, small if you consider a trillion dollars small, if they get a small bill done here, there's still going to be a, uh, a real um, effort by President-elect Biden to want to get another, a larger COVID aid relief uh, bill done. And Speaker Pelosi will want to do that as well. You also, um, uh, again, and Republicans will probably be wanting to drag their feet on that a little bit more as well, being concerned with the federal deficit and that's being racked up and, and one is sort of, I think, trust in the vaccine as being sort of the stimulus that everybody's looking for and to go a little more slowly and see what the economy, what the economy is asking for. And I think Democrats, again, are, are looking to trying to make sure at the front end that, uh, that the economy gets what it, what it needs so you don't fall into another, another recession. But then we're going back to some of the some of the old some of the old standbys that we've been seeing in these last uh, uh, last four or six years, 
drug pricing, always a big issue. There could be some savings for the, uh, for the Medicare trust fund involved in that. The Trump administration has, uh, on, its, on its way out here, has done a couple of rules, put out a couple of rules that actually sort of jumpstart that, uh, that conversation again regarding uh, Medicare Part B drugs and trying to lower the prices there and also trying to lower prices at the, uh, the counter for, uh, for patients. Surprise billing, they, that has proved to be elusive during this Congress. Uh, it looked pretty close a couple of times, but there's big differences uh, still between providers and insurers and, and, and others. And so we're still seeing that, uh, even though it could save a lot of money, uh, which uh, members of Congress always like so they can pay for other things, that is uh, still proving very difficult, uh, but we expect that to still can, to be up on the, uh, on the agenda. Opioid legislation, we've, uh, there's going to take a second run at that because of the fact that we've been seeing, uh, no doubt you have in your communities, been seeing another uptick because of the pandemic in that area. And then we've got come the, uh, come the spring and summer, the debt ceiling. And so we've got to sort of vote on raising the amount of money that, uh, that Congress is, uh, and the federal government is allowed to borrow. And so that always sort of forces the hand of potential Medicare and Medicaid cuts because that's such a huge part of the, uh, of the federal budget these days much more than, uh, than even defense now. And of course, the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is currently in this, uh, being looked at by the Supreme Court, the court could either, uh, could either do nothing regarding that and keep, it, uh, keep the law as it stands. They could strike it down in total, or they could just strike down parts of it. And so if they do strike down it in total, which I don't think folks are, are, are believing will, will happen, probably either nothing or just striking down uh, sort of the mandate part, but that that would uh, that would cause that would force Congress to have to do something, and for for members on both the Republican and, and Democratic side to come together and 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 sort of patch that up uh, or find a third way, and so that could really make things interesting if that were to happen. So, so there's there's no shortage of of healthcare issues uh, for the first six months certainly of uh, of 2021, and I think we're going to be doing um, another poll here uh, before we move on to Mike. So what would be the biggest benefit to you and your practice uh, in another COVID relief package? And so is it additional relief for providers, telehealth, which has uh, been very, very popular. I was speaking today to uh, a couple members of Congress who were just absolutely elated over, over the, the, the leaps and bounds from, uh, uh, from, uh, from that. And what the, that sort of one of the silver linings of the pandemic was sort of pushed us, you know, five or 10 years into the future on that. One was even talking about his son who had helped him see specialists from all over the country that normally they wouldn't have been able to do. Also relief for employees, vaccine distribution, obviously a big deal as well. Stimulus checks for individuals and families, federal unemployment insurance, and the extension of student loan forbearance for, uh, for, Peter, for our dear colleague, uh, Peter, so, he can, uh, so he's not in the poorhouse. Looks uh, like pretty even between uh, more relief for providers and telehealth and vaccine, all the, all the, all the healthcare stuff here. And looks like Peter, you've got some fans there as well that want to see you continue to, to eat and maybe, maybe buy a razor for that, uh, that beer that you've been, that you've been growing. Thank you, Mark. So, you know, we, we had Peter, Brian and Mark kind of set the stage of, you know, what, what turned out with the elections. Uh, I'm going to talk about, you know, what are the implications for healthcare and, and for, family medicine specifically. So I think the first point is, 
there, there's still some degree of uncertainty, and, and that's mainly because of the Senate races we're, we're waiting for in Georgia on January 5th. You know, if if the if the Democrats uh, get the majority in the Senate and, and add that with control of the House and the White House, there is a possibility that major health health uh, reform types of legislation can be enacted. However, keep in mind that you know some of these relatively controversial policies that Peter talked about during his pre- part of the presentation, like a public option where you have a government-run uh, plan compete with private plans, or or uh, enabling uh, folks uh, 60 years 60 years of age and older to, to buy into Medicare or, or become eligible for Medicare. These are pretty controversial still. So, you know, in, in such a, in, when the House and Senate both have kind of slim majorities by the Democrats, it, it's still pretty tough, uh, I think, to advance. So, second point is, you know, in light of the fact that we've got some slim, slim uh, majorities in both chambers of the House, and even even if it's all democratically controlled, you know, if if you can't get these controversial policies done, there are some bipartisan pieces of or bipartisan legislative activity out there. There's been a lot of focus on uh, maternal morbidity and mortality, as well as addressing the opioid epi- epidemic. So, you know, we we think that there, there could definitely be bipartisan consensus and possibly some traction in the 117th Congress on, on these types of topics. And then final point is, Mark talked about a little bit, you know, what happens if the ACA is ruled unconstitutional as a whole? We are expecting a Supreme Court decision, I think, by June. So that will largely tell what will what will be the next step for this issue. You know, the the ACA has been a very polarizing issue ever since its enactment uh, almost 10 years ago. So if, if, you know, the, the law in its entirety is scrapped, you know, we, we find it unlikely uh, that there can be an agreement on bipartisan agreement on major reform. However, there, there are areas of agreement. And one of these is, you know, protections for individuals with pre-existing conditions. Republicans and Democrats seem to have different views on it. But I think in principle, there is an interest in, in protecting this. Uh, going to implications for family medicine, I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll start with you know, the, the administration, you know, during the current administration, we, we've seen, you know, really great support for primary care, especially, you know, just take a look at the Medicare physician fee schedule that was finalized this week with, with inc- uh, significant increases for family medicine, thanks largely to the revaluations of the evaluation and management codes. You saw payment models geared towards primary care rolled out, uh, like the primary care first uh, model. So th- there's been a lot of support in the current administration, and we would expect to see similar support in the Biden administration to be more friendly toward primary care and, and family medicine, as well as osteopathic medicine in general, as you know, we think the Biden administration will have an emphasis on you know, taking a holistic approach to, to uh, health care. We, we think that also many of the regulatory efforts related to primary care are likely to continue which right now is favorable for family medicine. So I talked about the E&M code reimbursement increases. So, you know, continued efforts to emphasize primary care through rulemaking. Also retaining and expanding uh, telehealth flexibilities through the pandemic and and making some permanent. And then uh, continued changes to the quality payment program during the annual rulemaking cycle, you know, as well as 
you know, having an overall emphasis on prevention and the importance of primary care. There are some issues we want to flag that may arise under a Biden administration. I think under the current administration, you, you saw more flexibility to, to enable alternative health financing arrangements, you know, uh, really, really trying to incentivize the use of health savings accounts, for example, arrangements such as direct primary care and, and other, other types of arrangements. Traditionally, Democrats have been less favorable for these types of arrangements. So in, in the next administration, you may see less of an emphasis compared to the, the current administration on expanding the use of these, these types of arrangements. And then also, th there may be a different focus or different ideas on, on quality and how to improve quality, how to, how to have providers who report their quality efforts, uh, and how to pay for it. So this could lead to addition, additional regulatory requirements and possibly additional physician burden. So th that's what we see for the administration. I already talked about having the likelihood or, or low likelihood of major systemic healthcare delivery policy changes in the 117th Congress because of the slim majorities in both chambers. But you know, if, if there's anything that can pass that may impact family medicine, I, I talked a little bit about possibly maternal mortality uh, legislation or additional opioid legislation that would emphasize or, or uh, put more reliance on the importance of primary care. There's COVID relief legislation that, that's continuing to be worked on, and this could possibly have additional relief for providers that benefit family medicine, you know, additional provider relief fund funding, another round of Paycheck Protection Program loans, and then potential tax relief. There also could be additional regulatory relief in, in the healthcare sector. So uh, that, that's always a possibility. And then finally, with regard to if the ACA is, is overturned in its entirety and the replacement is, is needed. Family medicine could be impacted just because of the environmental impact of, of such an exercise. But given that, you know, we, we have a, a divided government, you know, really slim majorities, it, it's possible that, or we think it's likely that any compromise or any, any uh, bipartisan replacement of the ACA would probably skew a little, little more conservative than, than the ACA currently is. And so, you know, we would probably see this probably center more on providing more planned flexibility for individuals and, and states, you know, things of that nature. Uh, so I, I think that, that wraps up my, my section. At this time, uh, we'd be more than happy to take any comments or questions. One question is, Will, will the Biden administration do anything different with, with uh, the COVID response? I, I think, you know, Peter talked about the action plan for, for the Biden, incoming Biden administration. I, I think one overarching theme that you probably see is I think that the current administration has taken a more decentralized approach, uh, letting the states tailor their, their respective coronavirus uh, approaches, tailored it to their, their state needs. I think with the Biden administration, you'll, you'll see probably a more centralized approach with the federal government taking more of a lead. Another question about uh, will we have to pay back Paycheck Protection Program funding? This is Brian. Yeah, you know, that I, I would say as a general matter, um, you know, a lot of the funding that has come out uh, from the federal government at really a breakneck pace during the co uh, coronavirus pandemic 
it's been sort of a rolling basis. Things are changing. New things come out. Frankly, money has gone out the door. And, you know, we've seen this with the provider relief fund as well. Um, and I think it's, it similarly applies to the Paycheck Protection Program, where there, there are still some strings sort of attached to how that money, how those loans will be forgiven. I think in the, in the event that the PPP loans are forgiven, you know, that's, you're not necessarily free and clear just yet. The IRS has released rulings very recently related to the taxability of those forgiven loans. There is a, an ongoing effort in Congress to correct this, what many believe to be a technical error, but that is something to, to keep in mind, even if you are able to get those loans forgiven. Thanks, Brian. Got another question. Will there be additional loan forgiveness options for physician providers? Well, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to see another, if that's, you know, I, I'm not sure if we're going to see another advanced accelerated payments program initiative. And for the existing one, I guess, you know, they, they could, you know, they've, they've made some changes to that previously to try to uh, try to address that and, and, and extend the, the time period for that. So I think that's probably going to be something that they'll look at at some point next year uh, as you get closer to, to, to the date when, when, that, when that expires. And also, I think it'll, a lot so much depends on what happens with the course of the virus and the economy. If the virus is starting to wane and, and vaccine distribution and, and adherence is, is high and it seems to be making a difference, I think that, uh, that may cause Congress to not want to address that and to let it sort of ride out. If things remain remain sort of as they are, where we're in a sort of a high surge type of scenario, and uh, and it's being very difficult for for physicians and other uh, healthcare providers to to see patients, particularly in hospitals and surgeries are delayed, then you might start to see that them uh, having to say that they're going to have to sort of push that out again uh, in terms of when when those are due, and maybe even start another program. But again, so much is going to depend on on sort of the course of the virus and whether we are sort of getting back to that that uh, that uh, dark place where we were back in March and April. And there, there are certain federal funding opportunities that, that do not require uh, repayment, such as the Provider Relief Fund, which has been distributed to a wide range of providers. And we think um, also, Mike, that we also yeah. think that in terms of the Provider Relief Fund, that there could be more of that either possibly in this package that they're working on right now, or of course, in a in a in a in, a new, in another COVID relief package, uh, if they work on one in, in the uh, in uh, February or March. Thanks, Mark. Just I have a question here. I, I think on, on a uh, broader, higher level issue about there, there's been a lot of spending going on in terms of COVID relief. Uh, what are the implications in the future? For example, increased taxes. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll start, and I, I think others will, will chime in too, but. You know, unfortunately, you know, you've sort of seen the Republican Party return sort of more of a conservative budget approach, right? I mean, you can't spend trillions of dollars and just expect everything to proceed as normal and continue down that track. You know, so, yeah, I think there are implications here. I mean, we see this even in the legislative activity and, and how significantly it slowed down. There's certainly a level of spending fatigue, you know, with how much money has already been committed to the coronavirus. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, when when Congress starts to look at balancing the budget, you know, sometimes healthcare reimbursement is one of those things that, that's at the top of the list to be used as, a, as an offset, as they say. So, yes, I, th I think there certainly is a, a threat there. 
you know, Medicare sequestration is another uh, element that sort of looms over. And, and you know, again, similar congressional effort that, um, it, you know, ACFP, ACOFP is actually working on to try to get that Medicare sequestration moratorium extended so that those Medicare cuts do not go into place January 1st of uh, the coming year. Yeah, and, and, and just to kind of hop on, there was there's been a lot of talk about the Medicare Trust Fund and, and its, its sustainability. And so I think that is going to be something that, that comes up, especially in the next Congress when they're talking about uh, legislating with healthcare issues. Kind of what Mark read, Mark talked about earlier is you know you might be able to find some uh, pay fors and some some drug pricing legislation, but it's definitely that is going to be you know a pressure on Congress is uh, what's going to be happening with the federal budget in general and the Medicare Trust Fund. And, and I think federal spending in general will, will come up as an issue, as you know, Mark pointed out, we're going to be hitting the debt ceiling uh, pretty soon, and there's going to have to be congressional action to, to increase it. And usually when, when that comes up, there, there is a dis- policy discussion or a budget discussion and, and you know, a desire to try to either increase revenues or, or decrease federal spending. And it, it's, it always seems to be the, one of the first areas is reducing Medicare provider reimbursement. So that, that, that's always an issue to look out for. You know, Mike, I think someone also asked about telehealth in terms of the reimbursement compared to reimbursement for, for in-person visits. And so I, I don't think that we probably all can agree here, the four of us, that probably not going to happen in the foreseeable future. But in terms of, you know, the Congress will likely continue to try to provide as much flexibility as well as uh, CMS, as much flexibility for providers and for physicians for continuing the availability of telehealth and the expansion of telehealth. And I think they're going to be trying to work on, on, on trying to make those payments as, as, as robust as possible while still, um, as, as Peter and, and you all have been talking about and Brian, while, you know, having to look at the Medicare trust fund and, and, and sort of the, 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 you know, the issues that that poses as well as they're always concerned. I think a lot of members of Congress concerned always about fraud and abuse and, and trying to find that, that, uh, that fine line. Thanks, Mark. So, folks, we're at the top of the hour, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll conclude. Uh, I just wanted to point, just remind you all that uh, you know we we're, we're here to serve you uh, when it comes to uh, federal public policy issues. So, uh, if there's anything uh, we can help you with, any comments you'd like to make, uh, you can always reach out to us at uh, advocacy at acofp.org. That's advocacy at acofp.org, and uh, you know, your, your uh, message will be routed to us and, and we'll do our best to get back to you with, with some information. So with that, uh, thank you all for, for participating and uh, please stay tuned. Uh, we, we will, you know, we would like to continue to host these webinars on, on a frequent, relatively frequent basis. So uh, please uh, keep a lookout for the next notice. The ACOP Advocacy Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOP, please visit www.acofp.org. Curious about what other advocacy initiatives ACOP is undertaking? Visit www.acofp.org and look under the Resources tab to locate Advocacy, where you will find comment letters, position statements, advocacy updates, and other webinars and podcasts.